Well, good morning, Oak Mountain. Also, I want to extend my welcome to you. My name's Chad Walker, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. It's really good, be, it's really good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please join me today. We're going to look at a passage in Matthew 16 this morning. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. While you're turning there, I, I feel borderline almost Pentecostal this morning. Bring it, right? Come on. I feel the spirit of being a prophet a little bit uh, in the sense of I started preparing this sermon a few weeks back, and little did I know what all was going to transpire just within this week. It was a lot. The context that I started with in the studying of these scriptures was thinking about just all of the transition that's been going on since COVID, how unsettling that's been. Some of our staff retiring or leaving, taking another call, new staff coming on board, and even the context of the transition with Bob, our founding and senior pastor. It can feel uncertain. It can feel unsettling. There's questions and wonder. And then as I'm studying this week, we get the news of our dear friend Harry Reeder and his sudden passing. And then on the hills of Harry, we find out another spiritual giant, Tim Keller, that passed as well. Now, both those men have had a huge, significant impact in my life and my wife's life. Harry Reeder was with us and married us, did our premarital counseling, played a big part in our spiritual formation, huge part. And then I kind of named a firstborn kid after Tim Keller because he was a big impact on me as well, maybe from a distance. I've met him a few times, and he does know that I named my kid after him. But they both had a significant impact on me personally, and I've seen it at large in the greater kingdom as well. And to lose those men, and to, with all the context of the transition that's taking place, it can feel unsettling and uncertain. I didn't tell anyone what I was going to preach on this morning, and every morning before our service, uh, in the early service, we pray as a staff, and someone prayed, I pray for the uncertainty that people may feel. It's palpable. It's here. So I pray, and I hope that as we hear and we read and we study the scriptures this morning, that it encourages you, that you find confidence in the Lord, even in the times of uncertainty. And even in the uncertainty, I just want you to know that this is the way life is, right? Things are always changing. There's always been uncertain times. There's always been things that have happened, that have held out a promise that they're going to last, and they're going to make it, and they're going to endure, and they don't. I came across a quote by a famous British journalist that you may have heard of and even heard this quote before, but I thought it was appropriate for today. He was a journalist and a spy, and he had seen so many things and traveling decades around the world, nations, cultures, politics, and everything in between. And he did all this as a skeptic and a cynic towards Christianity. But later in his life, he began to realize there's got to be more than this. So let me read you what he wrote. His name's Malcolm Muggeridge, and he said, we look back on history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling. Revolutions and counter-revolutions succeeding one another. Wealth accumulating, wealth dispersed. One nation dominant and then another. In one lifetime, I've seen my fellow countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world and the great majority of them convinced that God has made them mighty and will make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed Austrian announce the establishment of a German Reich that will last for over a thousand years. 
An Italian clown report that the calendar will begin again with his assumption of power. A murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ashoka, and more humane than Marcus Aurelius. All in one little lifetime, gone with the wind. England now is just an island off the coast of Europe, threatened with further dismemberment. Hitler and Mussolini are now seen as buffoons. Stalin, a sinister name in the regime he helped to found and dominated totally for three decades. Can this really be what life is about? This worldwide soap opera that's been going on from century to century, from era to era, as old discarded sets and props litter the earth? Surely not. So there's always times of uncertainty, always times of change. People trying to give us something to hold out hope that we can grasp onto in that uncertainty. And it all falls away. It's all been discarded like props from a set. And yet the one thing that stands, the one thing that's endured over the centuries is Christ's church. It's still here. In this passage, we see that it's Jesus and his 12 that has now grown over the centuries. We have a vantage point to see that billions of people now call on the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is invading this world. His church is growing. And that's an amazing promise. But let me set the scene here before we read this passage. What do we see? One thing that's important to know is as Jesus is talking with his disciples, he's pulling away with them for a little while to have a very significant conversation. And if you know anything about Jesus' earthly ministry, you know that he didn't travel very far from his home. Not far at all. This is the significance of how little Jesus traveled to see that, that, it's reached, uh, that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth is amazing in itself. But the point of this passage here that they've traveled is the northernmost point that, they've gone, that Jesus has gone. They're traveling to an area called Caesarea Philippi, a very rocky area, which is a play on words we're going to see in a few moments. But he takes the disciples and pulls away to a basically pagan land, the edge of Israel, the furthest from Jerusalem. And he begins to talk to them and show them that there's way more than just the nation of Israel. And he's going to show them that this is where he will begin to build his church. And then right after this scene, we're going to see that Jesus, from that point forward, who's pointing north, begins to turn south. And he begins his death march towards Jerusalem to fulfill the promises that he's making even in this passage. So if you can, please stand with me so we can read Matthew 16 together. Starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
May God bless the preaching and hearing of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. It's his God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to know that we can find confidence in him, even in the midst of uncertainty. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us glimpses of what are seemingly small conversations with just a few people have worldwide timeless impact. Father, help us to see how you truly are. Help us to grasp more of the weight and gravitas of you, Jesus. Help us to understand and give us the confidence to know that your church is being built as we speak. And we can find assurance in that. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So how do we find certainty? How do we find this confidence in the Lord in the midst of the uncertainty? Well, there's three things we want to look at today. The first one is we can find confidence in Jesus because of his power. There's power in Jesus here. A power that is beyond what is possible for you and for me. It's interesting here the way that Jesus is teaching. He doesn't just information dump to the disciples and say, hey, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. In case you don't know that yet, I am him. He has a didactic conversation here. He's interacting with them. And he starts with, but who do people say that I am? And it's interesting because they say he's a prophet. He's like a prophet, which is really interesting. And it's actually a very high place in Israelite culture. Hey, Jesus, you're a pretty esteemed and important guy. People see you that way. You deserve respect. You should be able to go where you want to go. People open the door for you, let you in, buy you a drink. Like, you're pretty important. It seems good, right? But then Jesus flips it to the disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? It's so interesting. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He said, but, okay, what do you own? What have you grasped? Who do you say that I am? And we see Peter saying these words that are very important, saying, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's so important because what that is is a confession. I love the song that we sang because it's all a confession of what we believe. It's rooted in Matthew 16 that we believe that Jesus really is the son of the living God. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Saying he's the Christ is packed with so much meaning. Jesus, we know. We have walked with you. We have experienced you with our senses. We have been with you daily. We have slept around you. We have been with you in all, 24-7. There's no other way to explain the signs, the miracles, the words, your claims, all of who you are, other than the only explanation that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that you really are the God-man. You're not just an important man. You're the God-man. You've obliterated whatever view we had of what a prophet or an important religious person could be in Israel. There's no other logical conclusion that we can come to other than you're the Messiah. We've waited for you. We have longed for you, and you are here, and you've allowed us into your midst and get to share life with you. And what an amazing thing that is. But that wasn't just back then. I would say even today that our culture is very much like this still. If you think about it, our culture really likes to keep Jesus in a box. What, what's, people are generally pretty uh, reverent or okay with Jesus, but they're okay with Jesus as long as he's a good teacher or he's a moral example, 
Because we can have the illusion of control with Jesus, right? I can put him in my pocket and take him out when I want to. He's optional to me. I can put him on a shelf. He's containable. Because that, that, that would be realistic here if you view Jesus that way. But is your view of Jesus so big that there's no way it can be contained that it's an optional thing? Jesus obliterates the idea that he's a mere man. He is fully man and he's fully God. He's the God-man. He's the Messiah, the anointed one that has been promised for centuries that has now become the incarnate word and has dwelt among us. That is awesome. That is the Christ. That is who we believe. That is who we confess. And that confession is the rock, the bedrock, the cornerstone in which the church is built. That confession that what we believe and what we're saying is the way in which the church is going to continue and to build. That's the rock. On that, Jesus says, I will build my church. That confession is so important that it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal to you and to reveal to me that Jesus really is the Christ. You cannot believe that on your own. It takes the Holy Spirit working in your life for your eyes to be opened, the veil to be removed, your heart to be regenerated, and the Holy Spirit to come live inside of you, which raised Jesus from the dead, for you to even believe, to have that gift of faith, to believe that Jesus really is the Christ. And that is great news. You didn't even ask for it. And he went to the cross for you. He lived the obedient life even to the point of death. That is your Messiah and my Messiah. That is our Christ. So, also want to point out here too in the power that because this confession is the bedrock, it's also in which we see the power of, of Jesus working and the power of the Holy Spirit working and what is the difference between a sick church and a healthy church. See, you can't take this away that Jesus is not the Christ and still have the church any longer. The church would be sick it would wilt and die if you take Jesus away from who he really is. He's not just a moral example for us. He's not just a good teacher. He's the Christ that has redeemed you and ransomed your life. He's given everything that he can give in order to redeem you. And that's such great news. But it's the bedrock of the church. We see it in the statistics of a lot of mainline church denominations that have gotten away from this. And they don't think that Jesus is the Christ, that he was the God, fully God and fully man. And we see that the numbers are staggering. The decay that's happening, imploding. It's an essential of our faith that we believe this to be true. And there is power in that. So not only can we find confidence in Jesus because of his power, but it leads us to our second thing here. We can find confidence in Jesus because of his promises. There's some really good promises Jesus makes here. Really good promises. The first one I want you to see here is as Peter confesses that Jesus really is the Christ, that Jesus then flips it back to him and echoes the words of Matthew 5 of the Beatitudes, said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he changes his name. There's a word play here. He calls him Peter, which is Petros. So the word rock actually is a feminine word in the Greek, and Jesus does a word play and makes it masculine. Petra, but Peter, you're Petros. You're the rock. Your confession is the rock. Remember that. On your confession, I will build this church. 
And there's a wordplay that's happening here that Jesus gives him a new name. There's promises here of what he does when he changes our life. He makes us a new creation. He makes you a new creation as you believe the gospel of grace. And there's good news in that. There's good hope in that. But then he goes even further to say, I will build my church. I will build my church. And I hope even just that phrase gives you a little bit of more confidence here today through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to build his church. Let me slow that down for a second. He will build his church. Guarantee he will build his church. And then let's also notice whose church he's going to build here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church. I'm not celebrity-centric. I'm not looking for a Mark Driscoll or someone to be egocentric and take all the oxygen out of the room. Jesus takes the oxygen out of the room because it's all about him. He wants it all. Even in our constitution of our denomination, it starts off with saying that Jesus is the head of our church worldwide, not just the PCA. Jesus is the head of our church. I will build my church. This is Jesus' church. It's an amazing promise to know that he's going to do that. And we see the confidence that we can have here in him building his church. Even with all of its warts, even with our faults, the ugly underbelly of this church and any church, we're broken. We're sinners and we're not perfect. But we can see here that it's still Christ's bride. We can hold Jesus to his word in Ephesians 5 where he says, I will present you holy and blameless without wrinkle or blemish and present you to the Lord. There's such great promise in that. That is you and us, the church, and how he's presenting us to the Father. But I want to ask you, as you see the warts, as you see the underbelly, you see the faults, the flaws, What's your instinct and reaction? Is it to run, to retreat, to disengage? Is it more consumeristic thinking, you know what, this may not be the place for me, so I'm just going to unplug and think I'm going to find something better somewhere? God's not called us to that. We're all broken. We're all in need of God's grace. He's called us to engage, and we will see that as we show up, the Holy Spirit shows up and continues to do his work, which is to build Jesus' church, to continue to establish his body. J.C. Ryle is one of my favorite commentators, and he had this to say about it. He said, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, or burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands, and then they pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in their turn. The church is like an anvil, and it has broken many a hammer in this world. And it will break many a hammer still. And the church is like the bush which is often burning, yet is never consumed. What a great picture that is. To see that, that, that us, even in times of uncertainty, that we will not be consumed. He gives us the endurance because he is building his church. 
His church will stand the test of time because of how he has promised to do that. So lastly, not only do we find confidence in his promises and his power, but we also find confidence in Jesus because of his protection. Jesus protects, and that is great news, knowing the character of our Lord, that he is a protector. If you've been through our Battle of the Heart discipleship process, then you know and you've seen and understand that evil loves to hunt us. Evil wants to pursue you and take out your heart. 1 Peter 5, the devil is described as uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that is an aspect of the evil in which it pursues us. But interestingly here, I think Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter gives us another glimpse of what evil can look like. Because Jesus, when he's contrasting evil to the church, he describes, describes it in a way that evil is on the defensive. Because it talks about the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does a gate do? It protects, it keeps things in or out. Isn't that interesting that evil has a defensive posture towards the church? And why would that be? Why would Jesus contrast or show a, a display here between the defensiveness of evil with the church? It can only mean that we're on the offense, right? We got the ball. That's the way Jesus' church works. That's how it is built. It's because we have the ball. Jesus is handing the ball to Peter. Take the ball. Run with it. I guarantee you're going to score. But what's the ball? What's the offensive weapon that we have? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. This great confession of Peter that his eyes have been opened to see Jesus for who he is that's happened in your life and has happened in my life is the very thing that the Holy Spirit uses to go forth to the ends of the earth to open more people's eyes and to regenerate more people's hearts. It's how the kingdom expands. It's the offensive weapon. We will always score. We will continually see God's church expand because of the gospel of grace. It's such good news to us. We will always score. And the gates of hell will fortify themselves and they can't stop it. There's nothing that can thwart that plan that the gospel will go forth. There's such good news in that. There's protection in that. That even though evil hunts, it's also really scared of the gospel. Gospel always supersedes any amount of evil that is thrown at you and me and the church. There is no accusation that the accuser can put towards you that cannot be squelched out by the power of the gospel. And that is great news. So we love that. And I want to ask you, do you find yourself more in a posture that leans towards a defensive posture? I get it. What a broken culture that's antagonistic towards these things. And we can be defensive, and rightly so, in so many ways. But is that your default gear, to go in a defensive posture, not remembering that the gates of hell have a defensive posture because of the offense that you have with the gospel? Do you lean into that? Do you engage by sharing the gospel with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, 
people in the community, mission trips, the gospel will go forth. And as it does, God will build his church. And that is such good news for us to know that we are on the offense here. The other thing I want to show us about protection from this passage is that Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Now, I don't think it was just exclusively to Peter because two chapters later we see Matthew 18 where it also says the same thing in a plural form that you all have the keys to the kingdom. Matthew 18 shows us how to reconcile with our brothers and our sisters. It gives us a very clear process for that. And here we see that the keys of the kingdom that has been given to us, that God's established leaders to lead the church, much like today, again, I think I'm a prophet, but we're having an election today of our leaders. Um, I'm just kidding about prophet, by the way. Y'all didn't laugh. <laughs> but we are electing leaders that lead this church that God has called. And God uses our leaders to bind and loose things. That means the admittance into the family or not admitted into the family. And that may sound like a high bar. And it's interesting, as working with Shelly Richardson, our new member coordinator, and being involved in many, many interviews, and probably many of you here as well, there's almost kind of a nervousness for people when they go in for their membership interview. Like, what are they going to say? What are they going to ask? But it's so encouraging to see every membership interview that happens because all it is is you sharing your story of how you came to know Christ. It's so encouraging to hear. It's a celebration story. It's the way that Jesus has responded to Peter, saying that, you know, blessed are you. And membership interviews are so encouraging to see that. And that is the only admission into membership. We want you to be baptized as an identity marker that you're in the faith, but it's not salvific. The only requirement to be a part of God's church is that you confess in the same way as Peter. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the son of the living God. So I want to give a, a warning and encouragement that some of you here have probably dated Oak Mountain. Some short term, some long term. And if you have, I just want to encourage you to join the local church. Join us. Covenant together in a covenantal relationship. A committed relationship. We want to be committed to you as well. But it comes with a warning as well. I believe supernaturally that if you're not a member of the local church, you're actually exposed to more attacks. And I say that as a warning and pleading with you. Let's covenant together. Let's protect each other as we do as a body. <clears throat> I've seen it happen firsthand. Those that are not members and how they've been attacked and exposed. And I do not want that for any of you. So please join with us. So I'll close with this. There's a quote from Will Durant in his book, The Story of Civilization, I'd probably call The Story of Christ, but this is what he said. There's no other greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors bearing all trial, trials with a, fierce of ten, with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generate chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and last, defeating the strongest state that history has ever known. Caesar and Christ met in the arena, and Christ had won. Christ has won. He's already demolished all the strongholds, and his kingdom will go forth. And there's great confidence in that. So let us find confidence in the fact that his promises, his power, 
and his protection help us and ensure us even in times of uncertainty. And just to wrap it all up here, if you were to fast forward and go to Acts 11, you would see the same Peter that was north of Israel with Jesus that has been called to go to some other Gentiles and share the gospel with them, Cornelius and his family. And he's called to go and he does. And they receive the Holy Spirit and they believe. God gives them the faith to believe. And they say the same thing that Peter says, that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is, I'm sorry, and Peter's so excited about that, he goes back to Jerusalem to tell the Jerusalem council, even these non-Jews are believing the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you believe this? It's evident the Holy Spirit is working here. And they're celebratory. And then the next thing they do is they commission this guy named Saul, or Paul, to go. That goes to Antioch and establishes the first church. And then to the ends of the world, as far as they knew at the time. But Jesus uses this in Matthew 16 to commission his people to spread the gospel and go forth to reach the nations. And we can find great encouragement in that. So with that, with his protection, his promises, and also his, his, um, his, his word here for us, that we can see that he's also given us his sacrament today. And we're going to move into a time of communion with the Lord. He's given us the Lord's Supper as a means of grace for us to remind us of him and his work that he's done for us. When he was done with this conversation, I'll remind you that he, he turned southward and he headed towards Jerusalem to hang on a cross, nailed to the cross, and suffered by Jews and Roman soldiers. And he did that willingly for you and for me. That was the price he paid for his church. He promised to do that, and he has done it by his work. This communion today is for you. It's a means of grace to nourish you spiritually. It is for you to know the Lord more. So with that, let's pray together. Father, we pray for these elements today that you would set them apart. Father, we long to meet with you this morning Thank you for your word. Jesus, we want to see you high and lifted up because you are worthy of all of our praise. Jesus, we come to you in our uncertainty when things seem a little more fragile and a little more unsettling. And we look to you for our confidence and for our hope. Jesus, we love you because you love us. And we pray you would meet with us now. We pray that your spiritual presence will be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to invite you to this table. This table is for you if you're a member in good standing with the local church. This table is for you. also want to encourage you that if you don't know the Lord and you do not confess Christ like Peter has, that he really is the Son of God who laid down his life for you and has paid for the penalty of your sin, then I would say don't take the Lord's Supper right now. This is a sacred sacrament for his people. But if you are here and you are feeling uncertain and you feel unworthy, you own your flaws and you don't feel as though you could take this Lord's Supper, this table's for you. Jesus has paid and given up his entire life for you. You can find hope and rest and peace in him. So with that,
I'm going to read the words of 1 Corinthians 11. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the blood of my covenant. Do this as you drink, as often as you drink, in remembrance of me.